The Kinky Boys Podcast. Exploring one kink at a time. I mean, I think it's time we got into the nitty-gritty of the book and talked about spoilers. Spoiler than about alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Big alarms and... Uh... So, spoilers! Okay, this is for people who have read the book and yeah. the previous books, or just people just like to know what's ahead of time. Hell, I'm one of these people that really doesn't care about spoilers. God bless you, so- because I, I hate spoilers myself. Uh, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that really stood out to me in this book was you've got a character you introduced in the last book called Pup Orizaba. Oriz- oh, that's how it's pronounced. Orizaba, yeah. And when he was introduced in the last book, he came off as quite sweet and was a help to Roland in time of need. And here he really has gone through a personality sort of 180 and he sort of devolved into a fanatic for the villain Richard Stark and in the final chapter he actually turns on Stark and just is sort of self-consumed by his own needs. I mean, is this to do with the overarching theme of corruption that's been running through all the books? Yeah, this is... Um, this, let's start with the word uh, gold. Uh, yeah. And this is very spoilery, but... Um, the the concept of gold, which starts from the, the very very first book, the Golden Man, mm-hmm. uh, suggests that there's there's something that will corrupt you by accessing this book or the knowledge from. The, and this isn't new. This is an archetype that many writers uh, and composers and filmmakers have, have explored, mm-hmm. uh, and many times with the, the very same metal. The, you know, the, the concept of gold can can corrupt from from Midas to uh, Wagner. They've they've gone down yeah. The road. Um, I mean, it's a very really old um sort of style it's like in nordic legends often sort of dragons or at least the dragon-like beasts that guard hordes used to be men and they've sort of lived just off their own sort of greed for so long and this their own obsession they physically became monsters which i find fascinating and, and you know uh most dragons in many stories hoard gold um, mm-hmm. in the uh, the ring uh operas by wagner the Rheingold mm-hmm. is the very thing that starts all this trouble. Uh, it is stolen and it is misused by one of the gods. And in fact, the Rheingold is what brings down the whole world of the, of the gods. It literally destroys their world. Um, you know, it, it's been there through and through. And gold also, interestingly enough, is uh, one of the metals that powers a lot of our technology. Uh, digital technology. Microchips, mm-hmm. you know, have a lot of gold. Uh, it was really interesting. And that is one instance uh, this is kind of writer you know behind the, the scenes talk mm-hmm. uh, as a writer i think you have to over time get more selective with what things you want to use that have been done many times before and which ones you want to reinvent for you. and that was definitely one where i looked at it and i was like there's no need to reinvent the wheel in terms of like this element or this thing that will corrupt people gold is the right element and here comes one of the mega spoilers y'all this is mega spoiler as you may know by now, because you've read the book, or you are a spoiler whore, <laughs> which bothers me <laughs> if you're a spoiler. Uh, but uh, the big reveal in book four is that Roland has been chosen to wear the mantle of an Aztec god. And this is the reason why he became who he is with all these powers. And that god is Tezcatlipoca, the, the smoking mirror, one of the most venerated gods in the Aztec. Uh, if you look at, well, I looked at 
uh, the archaeological record and then all the anthropologists and academics that had written mm-hmm. about that god, the way in which he was depicted, um, you know, very simply, I, I've already done that. You can even see it on the cover of book four. He has a missing foot there. Instead of a foot, he has this uh, black mirror that spews black smoke. Very magical. And uh, he often has, you know, other elements, a, a black band across his his eyes uh, and lots of headdresses, which I wasn't going to mm-hmm. do for, for this version for his superhero suit. Uh, there is one element that isn't uh, very mystical, but which the Aztecs always showed that God wearing. And it was gold. And there's more than a few academics. Uh, I'll, I'll have to look for the book that I used, but uh, one of the... Uh, Academics who's looked at the iconography of that uh, discovered that you know gold shows up a lot in the depiction of Tezcatlipoca, and that that uh, ornamentation was directly tied to military power. So this element of like human obsession with with power or the corruption of of men, in my eyes, uh, was also symbolized by the gold ornaments that he had. So even in his costume, he's got some gold panels that literally like shine like gold. Um, and then it's up to Roland, of course, to to be to choose to be virtuous or not. So let's put him aside. But gold was just so important to talk about um, mm-hmm. because corruption is at the heart of the the books. And um, to tie it back to Pup Orizaba, that's exactly what happened to him. I think uh, you you posed the question is like, wow, that what a change and how did that happen? But mm-hmm. you also figured it out very easily from one book to the next because we don't spend a lot of time with him. And Richard uh, Stark, which is impossible because the books are told from Roland's point of view. Uh-huh. Um, but you quickly figure out that yes, he not only did he go back to him, but he got swept in that cult of the authoritarianism and whatever power uh, Richard Stark gives p- to people, and it backfired on him. And th- this is pun intended. Uh, you know, by the end of the book, not only does he turn all this violence in on himself, but Richard Stark just used him as a pawn. You know, in those last scenes of the book, yeah. like Richard Stark shoots him dead. And that, that is, uh, to me, one of the sad results, right, of, uh, corruption. Because I do think Pop Orizaba, he's very young and, like, impressionable. Yeah, and it is very, especially if you have, I mean, we've talked a lot about mentorship and, like, how it, it can guide you. If you find the wrong person, it can really take you down some dark paths and really breed the worst in you. And it sort of, I mean, honestly, I kind of felt bad for him. I did too. Like it's well, well, in my in my mind, I I was wishing yeah. that he would maybe have a love affair with Roland at some point, and that you know mm-hmm. he would kind of join join his troop. But that's not what happened. I always find it very interesting when the authors talk about how characters didn't go in the direction they wanted them to. I'm one of those authors. It happens mm-hmm. all the time. Uh, another great example of the character kind of really doing their thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roland's vicious violence by the time he finds the crimson hand in the woods uh-huh. i was not prepared for that i didn't plan it and uh roland becomes more violent than i think we've ever seen but he just did it on his own i i don't know why he that's <laughs> well i mean from my point of view i just got it as a sort of this was his breaking point he'd been pushed through so much and so much yes. crap for so long it's sort of that has an effect on people and often it does express itself as violence especially in like PTSD, yep. it expresses itself as an anger that you can't funnel properly. And so it kind of made sense to me why that was there. It, it, well, and it, it's, you're right about that. He was past the breaking point. Stefan, another mega spoiler, uh, you know, was killed by, by yeah. 
by uh, Richard Stark's people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also was a natural progression of the big themes of what's happening with the story. You know, the Crimson Hand is such a cosmic monster. Uh, the only way to deal with him was to deal with him kind of in a mythical way. It was going to be like this crazy violent battle. It, it could never be subtle and it wasn't going to be done with like magical rays of light. <laughs> you know, that like, came yeah, out yeah. It, it was going to be really hands on. And that's the progression. But uh, Paporizaba, it's, it is sad what happened. I could not control it. Uh, but there's more than a few characters who get corrupted by various things in the Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you touch on, we revisit a character from the first book who, you know, was this very kindly, sagely, grandfatherly Papa Bear. Yes. Who's just been fundamentally changed by um, Crystal Meth. Yep. And, that, and he calls it his his gold. You know, he's, he's he talks about being obsessed with what he got from Crystal Man. You know, th- this is an area where we don't have to think about fictional books or magic or superhero suits. Uh, most of us, especially if we're queer or gay, we know of somebody who's been touched by meth. And it, they oh, literally, it, they get turned inside out. It is an epidemic in London right now. It's... I, so many people just get swept up into that scene and... They get chewed up and spat out. And yeah, it's very depressing. It is. Um, and, you know, to, to tie it back again to what I try to accomplish, to, for me, for the first time to write a, a books, a series of books about super, I just, I'm never going to be that writer that wants to just write sort of happy-go-lucky stories. I, I wanted to say to myself, well, what, what are some of the, the pitfalls of having these superpowers? And more than anything, it's temptation temptation to do things with them because i think that's what most people would actually honestly choose is <laughs> to misuse them <laughs> i i and that maybe is myself included you know if you could really fly would you really be helping lots of people or would you just go up into you know a warehouse and steal a bunch of like amazon packages i don't know i don't know i don't have yeah, the answer. Yeah, but but roland uh certainly Although he makes mostly good choices, he often makes the wrong choice. And this book also is about <laughs> preparing for big things and having falling, you know, falling flat on your. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, we get the fact that right before um, Stefan's killed, uh, Roland cheats on him. Yes, in essence, and it's sort yes, of that. <laughs> uh, I mean, you've touched on this before. This isn't the first time Roland's done this in a relationship, and. There wasn't a big dramatic reveal of, oh, I've cheated on you. It was just something that happened. And this is sort of a flaw in Roland's character that he does. Yeah. Which is like a lot of people I know in the real world. And it's not to excuse them or to say, oh, they can't help it. But it's almost like in their nature. And um, of course, here it has a very sad, tragic effect. It's literally minutes before, you know, or maybe an hour before uh, when Roland is cheating in this very big way. And then he arrives. He doesn't even get a chance to get um, to feel the repercussions from Stefan because Stefan's dead. So it's really sad. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> oh dear. I mean, I'm not going to lie. This book was very depressing for me. Oh. It, it, it hit me hard because you. I'm a speed reader. I devoured this in a day. But the thing about speed reading is you still have to take the same amount of time to process it. Sure. And just getting through this, like, oh, that happened. Oh, that happened. That was tough. <laughs> Which isn't to say a bad thing. A book that makes you feel things is sort of, you know, that's how you know it's a good book. Right. It, 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 it stirred emotions. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, you're not going to be the first reader to say that. You know, my mission in life is not to write gloomy books. I write the book 
in that moment that is coming out in that moment, uh, you know, they, they happen to be bleak. And you mentioned utopias. Before. Um, maybe one day I will write about something that's more like of a utopia or a brighter book. I just haven't figured out that book hasn't arrived for me. Right, right now yeah. it's it's these kinds of uh, stories that are what's coming out. But but there's still some bright moments in that book. Uh, these are spoilers, also. But uh, Roland's insights into who he is and becoming for the first time, for the, really for the first time, becoming comfortable with who who he really is, all powers aside, uh, that to me is the victory of, of gold. He he really finds his confidence, uh, and it's not just in the final battle. This happens much more before that. He he starts making stronger decisions and puts this band of people together. And he asks Gunnar Solis for this crazy favor. And that's something Roland never would have done in book one. And I think that that to me is the biggest ray of hope for the series. Roland uh, understands himself. I I feel the big moment when the big shift happened was the scene where he his body goes completely out of control. And I was reminded so much of a, like how a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. Yes. Because literally the caterpillar dissolves and there is nothing less left of it and it's soup and the seed of the butterfly grows in that. Mm-hmm. And so it is literally a completely new cat creature. But somehow scientists have found that they keep all the caterpillar's memories That's- or despite going through this sort of utter destruction physically that's so weird but but perfect yeah. perfect as an analogy yeah. for that yeah and you that is the turning point uh, what what roland goes through mm. in that that chapter it's in essence almost a type of death and he comes back from it uh, re-knitted but he can never forget what happened in that moment his body literally does turn inside out and um, i guess it does have those horror elements um, it's, mm-hmm. very, it's very gory you know, it's usually in movies they, they they try to show these transformations in like very glamorous ways, but in his case, the skin peels off; these uh, sort of creature-like tentacles come out. But he can even see his own bodily fluids, like his shit and his piss. Mm. Everything's just like a one big puddle, and uh, you feel pity for them. Yeah, it's sort of. I mean, you see, in again going back to sort of shamanism and spirituality, you see the motif and the method of going through a sort of very painful metaphorical death in order to grow yes in both stories and in real life spirituality you see sort of for, for like true transformation you need um to really destroy your old self in a way well and uh in roland's case there's you know the connection to aztec mm-hmm. Mythology and culture is really strong. And so the God that he's embodying, which is again, the smoking mirror, uh, he's, he's well known for many things, but he's the God of night. Uh, he's the God of trickery. He's the God of transformation. Uh, so even themes that you saw in the earlier books, transformation fetish, they've all been leading up to this. But in order for that God to really manifest himself through this human being, he's going to do what he does best. Uh, that God is, uh, not cruel. But he's maybe facetious and under, not understandable on human terms. So, for example, um, if you leave the house today and lightning strikes, you know, and you, you burn half of your arm off, that God, on any given day, he might feel pity for you and say, oh, you know, we'll heal your arm. Or another day, he might be like, sorry, fucker, <laughs> you, you <laughs> burned your arm. Uh, he's, he's not easily understood. And um, that scene and many things that happened to Roland... If if we believe that the god is channeling himself through him, which he is, um, they are not easily explained, and they they don't seem like the actions of a typically Christian benevolent god. And so, um, 
uh, that scene, you know, for all the reasons I just stated, like the, especially the Aztec cultural element of it, it had to happen at night. It was going to involve uh, this deep magical element, and even the mm-hmm. there's the foreshadowing. He he hears this bird in the woods, which is actually another manifestation of the god, because the, that god has a couple of animals that represent him, but one is the wild turkey. Uh, which is what was in the woods, and then the jaguar, uh, which we see later when Roland becomes more monster-like. And so um, they're they're all tied in. You know, readers don't have to know all this stuff about Aztec lore and culture, but I'm glad to show it to them because it's it is deeply rooted in research and reading that I've been doing for you know almost forty years. I mean, that is my. I just love when you have references and pull upon mythologies in works. Especially if you don't make it too, like, blindingly obvious. Right. And so when you're... Because, you know, I love studying mythology just as sort of a hobby. And then when I see, oh, oh, that's what was going on in that story. That's why that character was like that. That, And it is this sort of dawning where you see the deep symbolism. And I love that. So speaking of sort of Aztec mythology, is the Crimson Hand based on a real creature? Uh, Yes. Um, It's... Mm. Here's, again, mega spoiler, but uh, halfway through the book, uh, Roland, you know, you talk about shamanistic practices. He he goes into the dream world, which for the readers of the books, you guys know that the dream world is really important. And in the dream world, he finds again the uh, La Petrolera, which is this creature. It doesn't even have a clear body, per se. It's this thing that exists out there. And she, she helps him for the last time before she disappears. And um, she reveals to him the real name of the Crimson Hand. That's all she says. Says this. This is his real name, and so that sets Roland on this sort of mini excursion, this mini quest throughout the rest of the book to figure out what what that name means. And he does figure it out. By the time we get towards the climax, it's become very clear to Roland. It's his theory, but he is correct that the this this name that the this creature gave him. Uh, she said his his name is Sipakli, right? And it's a it's a very ancient name, older than time. And so once Roland kind of figures that out. Of course, through the magic of books, <laughs> we learn that mm. it is a, it is the name of a colossal cosmic monster uh, that once was the only thing that existed in the universe. It literally was just monstrous. You know, there there, there were gods present, yeah. but he he was just or she. Sometimes it's a she uh, was just this huge crocodile fish thing. And um, th- this is again Aztec mythology that I'm really glad to share with my readers, especially people who are not Mexican. Um, the myth for that monster is very simple. The, the monster um, was causing trouble, and uh, the gods tr- wanted to put an end to it. And I'm really reducing the story, but it was two gods that defeated the monster. Uh, it was Quetzalcoatl, which everybody's heard of. He's the most yeah. famous. And his brother, Tezcatlipoca, the, the smoking mirror. Mm-hmm. So they are literally brothers. And um, in trying to trick the monster, Tezcatlipoca put out his foot and Sipakli bit it off, right? Which, if you all recall, who bites off Roland's yeah, yeah, foot the in, hand. in the Transformation Fetish book? Yeah. So it's a retelling of that tale. And um, once once they defeat the monster, they're able to create the sky and the earth from that. So it's a very ancient creation tale, right, from the Aztecs. It's a beautiful, beautiful myth. And uh, this is a way of kind of reaccessing that for modern audiences. Uh, one thing you were probably asking yourself is, well, we get it. Roland is the, the smoking mirror. Sounds great. Sipakli is uh, the crimson hand. We get that. Very powerful. 
battle. Where is Quetzalcoatl? Right? Because it was the two brothers yeah, that did it. Yeah. Well, uh, my job as a good novelist is to present you sometimes with riddles and bigger questions that maybe only get answered in future books. So what I will say for anybody who's wondering is there is a manifestation of Quetzalcoatl in gold that if you really sort of think about like what's happening is there. So Roland j- doesn't just defeat the Crimson Hand or Sipakli all on his own. There, there has been help so that I'm retelling mm-hmm. that story properly. Uh, I'm not going to spell it out all, all out for you. I think I want people to enjoy that and sort of try to like come up with their theories as to how that works. But especially when I revisit some of this universe in future books, uh, it will all make, you know, it all fit together. Yeah. But, but that's a big part of the myth. It's the two brothers, Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatlipoca, defeating this fish crocodile thing. And down through the last few chapters, that's basically what in gold. Yeah, so... So one thing that got me is, after that, of course, you have the confrontation with the more human villain of the series, Stark. And Stark seems confident that even if he dies, the Crimson Hand will look after him. Mm -hmm. So is it only sort of the Crimson Hand manifestation that's sort of gone? or And this creature's just gone sort of back to the other, back to the the behind-the-scenes sort of world? So this... That's a great question. And, you know, I'm coming up on my seventh published book. Uh, mm-hmm. Six of those books really do connect in big ways as a kind of a shared set of universes. Mm-hmm. And if readers have really followed along with this series and then 13 Secret Cities and Nine Lords of Night, what you'll discover is that so far I've never actually shown what the gods would look like. So if we're talking about Quetzalcoatl, mm-hmm. the Smoking Mirror, Quatlique, uh, you know, all these like famous Aztec gods... I don't actually show their, their bodies, their faces. Uh, one, because I think my version of those gods, they're so incomprehensible. Uh, to, to look at them would actually drive a person insane. And so that also means that they have an aspect to them that is not easily defined by having a physical presence. Uh, you know, one of the things I really am into is like quantum theory and nanoparticles. Mm-hmm. And according to some of those theories, you know, a, a particle can appear and reappear in a different place, defying the, the traditional laws of... And so, I'm not trying to be too tricky, but maybe a little bit. Uh, yes, Sipakli can remanifest in some other manner in the future in some other book. Could he resurrect Richard Stark and bring him back from the dead? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't have a ton of confidence in yeah. that. Uh, but that has more to do with... Uh, Richard Stark's political affiliation with that deity than anything else, because he yeah. he really was trying to just gain more power. And, um, you know, I don't know if, if, if he made that pact. And in fact, if you look at the old myths, it's uh, Sipakli, the, this gi- gigantic monster, is not necessarily a villain in some of the old myths. In my series, he definitely is. Um, but um, I really feel like with Richard Stark... Like with many stories, it's good to just wind the story down. I don't want to bring back zombies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I don't think we're going to see him in any other way in the future. There will be better villains who are living people. <laughs> who, who I mean, that is like with a lot of TV shows, especially the more supernatural ones like Buffy, Supernatural, that sort of strain of shows. You can kind of tell they hit a point when they have to start bringing people back from the dead. Right. You can kind of see it sort of getting on in years when that sort of has to happen well and you know to go to a mega spoiler i mean you guys wanted these spoilers so i guess we're oh yeah spoiler away you know one Mm -hmm. of the biggest reveals and spoil roland comes to an understanding at the end of the book of how much time he's got left to live 
And I guarantee you, listeners and readers, even if I ever have Roland showing up in a cameo or whatever, that that limited time that he's got before he is basically re-sacrificed back to that god and, you know, his physical body goes away, that will happen. And Roland will not be coming back. He's not a Jesus figure. You know, he, there's no, there's no zombie Roland. That's what will, will take place. And that's also because I'm following the traditions of those Aztec myths and Aztec mm-hmm. culture. Uh, because that, well, I, I didn't mention this, but this is super interesting. Um, in the times of um, the Aztecs, the Toltecs, before the Spaniards arrived, uh, the priests and the ruling class literally did do this. They would choose either a, somebody from the court, or a very physically gifted person, and they would mm-hmm. choose him to be the representation of the god for usually about a year. And that, that means he would wear the costume of the god, and he would be treated for the whole year as the god himself. And then at the end of that period, guess what? He was sacrificed. Uh, and then it, the cycle would begin yeah. again. So I am also retelling that for modern audiences. Um, in the case of Roland, if you've done the math, I'm bending the rules a little bit. His transformation started about four years before, and then he's got a little bit amount of time left now. I will explain how that time got elongated, but what is definitely Mm -hmm. true is he will die at the end of that time that he knows he's been given. And he, at the end of the book, he knows how much is left. So it could be a couple of days, could be a couple of months, but it's not, it's not a very long time. And I think that's uh, something really important to do. Like characters have to die. So he will die. Yeah. I, you mentioned sort of while while you're not visiting Ro- back to Roland, you know he is sort of on an active quest to seek out. I believe it was the Blue Witches. That's right. So he does have sort of goals to complete in that time, and um, so are these plot threads going to be picked up in another book? Like definitively, have you got it planned out? Yes, sir. <laughs> where the Blue Witches are going to come yes, in? Yes, and- <laughs> that, that is that is one thing I, I am uh, very happy to report to to my readers. Uh, the, these things, I have a very fertile imagination and, and I write things down and I start plotting ahead. Um, all those questions and those quests will be expanded further. What I can't guarantee is that we will have another book dedicated just to Roland. I think the part that he plays is, is a, a small piece of like something bigger with the Blue Witches. Uh, so we, we will probably see him again in some way or another. But, um, this is definitely expanding that universe and uh, we will get to see more about what these blue witches are all about because it's it's left very open-ended at the book at the end of the book you would you would normally think oh well is this just a group of shamans in the mountains of mexico mm-hmm. and it's not really clear because they're they live in the blue mountains and there are blue mountains in various places of the world so I on purpose wanted to leave the reader hanging a little bit so that uh, it'll be much more of a surprise when we get to those places in future books. Um, the thing I'm really trying to figure out is how much time do I want to take off before I revisit this universe? Uh, mm-hmm. I do feel in a good way, very exhausted from finishing the series. It's been like five years of my life. And I, I definitely need a break before I pick things back up because it's very intense for me. I don't know why... I feel like I just went through like a marathon, but uh, I need a little time off before I get to the Blue Witches and whatever else is happening in the universe. I can imagine, yes. It, I mean, it's a very intense universe. It's very... <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's, uh, you know, I, I do try to bring some levity to it. There's somebody, yeah. um, well, Gunnar Solis, one of the new characters, he, he jokes in the book about Roland. You know, he turns to somebody, and to Nathan, is this guy always the serious? You know, because Roland's uh-huh. like kind of an intense person. He's moody. And uh, that, that was a way of kind of also 
taking a peek at like my own process because I do get really into the particulars of all these books and how they work. And that's also why I get exhausted at that. So I'll take a little mm-hmm. break and then I'll come back and, um, and then things will look a little bit different, but there's a lot of open threads. Uh, Roland's quest in the dream world is huge at the end of the book. Now he's got to find this city, right? And, um, will he, will we get to see more of that? Uh, I think we're going to get to see a lot of that. Um, yeah, again, we're not, I'm not going to do more Roland books, but we're going to find out more about that city of, uh, Bukpak, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the dream world. That's good. I mean, I've, I'm really looking forward to finding more about this. I'm very into sort of complex worlds and exploring into them. Now, you mentioned Gunnar as sort of like the levity. I'm going to have to bring this up. So why kill him in the end? Huh. Um, this, <laughs> this is one of those situations where, the 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 book really like I'm just channeling the book and mm-hmm. and the the real tragic end to somebody who has such good intentions uh is just something that I just basically funneled through myself to let that out uh one of the things that I've experienced as an adult you know when you're a child I think you simplify that. as an adult this is a I guess a ethical moral and maybe spiritual and religious question why do bad things happen to good people and for any of you who have read the book. You might, some of you might think, well, that motherfucker shot himself. So he did this to himself. He brought it onto himself. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I think that's still a bad thing that happened to a person because I don't, I don't judge people who commit mm-hmm. suicide. Uh, I, because we don't really know what's going through their no. head. Um, and so what happens to him is so tragic. And, and, you know, he's like this big ray of light in the book. He, he helps all of them. He trains them for, for several weeks. He gives them a place to, to stay. He, he cooks for them. You know, he, he's also erotically involved with Roland. Like there's so much that he brings to them and he's so different than everybody else. I thought, well, he's just such a lovely person, but, um, at the same time, he's not perfect and he, he didn't even get corrupted. That's the other sad part of like yeah. his tragedy. He didn't get corrupted. He just sort of made a mistake. And um, he was real hard on himself when he discovered the mistake he made. And, uh, you know, for any readers who are just super upset about him, like, I, I don't know what to tell you. Because he's super lovable. And he also is uh, just, he's very hot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so in terms of like erotic scenes that he could be in future books... We can't do that because he won't be around, but at least while he's involved in this book, he's, I mean, he, he has a, a really great scene with Roland and Stefan. And, um, mm-hmm. I think we, for me, I just have to cherish those moments where he did exist in the book, but it, it's, uh, tragic and I, I can't apologize for it. It's just the book that it was going to be. <laughs> oh, well. So definitely no Gunnar zombies in the future. <laughs> no, I'm not into the zombies. And you know, for him, uh, he, he was not corrupted. And I, I'm not judging no. it because I'm not a firearms person. I, I'm not actually anti-firearm. I think they have a time in their place, mostly for hunting. Like if you subsist mm-hmm. on hunting, you know, you, you have to kill a deer. I don't really like them in cities yeah. or, or people having them in their house. I would never own one. Um, I'm sort of the same. I, I see their uses in like, if you live more rurally, they, you know, they are a tool. Yeah. If you're living in the city or the suburbs, they're a weapon. They're a weapon. And... um that, that's my personal choice. But in, in the books, in these books, he, he makes it very clear that guns are a big part of his life. And you're, you know, some of you will laugh and you'll say, well, his, he's into guns and his name is Gunnar. You, go ahead, go ahead and, and giggle. But like, it works. His name had to be Gunnar. Uh, and it's his very love of guns that also undoes him in the end. And, um, I can't explain why that happened. It's just, 
you know, when I was writing that scene where he discovers the mistake he made, Roland's crew into a bad spot, and he caused, in a way, he caused Stefan's death or he contributed that guilt. You know, even if he didn't have a gun in his hand at that time, I, I assure you, he would have killed himself. In some- so it's not really about the gun. It's about the guilt that he carried. Yeah, it was the end of a, yeah. a good person. So, yeah, I get really sad thinking of it because I, I lamented it the same way. But, <laughs> but again, I, I don't write, I don't write books with a particular uh, effect in mind or marketing or whatever. I write the mm-hmm. books that, are needed to be written at that time. And so uh, there's surprises in there that uh, are pleasant and there's some that are very unpleasant. No, I mean, you've cooked up an amazing book here. Um, Thank you. What I'm going to ask, and this is a bit out of the blue, what books would you recommend people read? I mean, it could be a story. I mean, it could be a book for learning more about Aztec mythology. You know, what books do you love and you think more people should read? Uh, there's definitely a few. I mean, th- this could be like a whole podcast in itself. But, <laughs> but knowing what people understand about my role as Pablo Green writing books, mm-hmm. there's definitely, we should start, I guess, first with some of the people I've mentioned in the dedications of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should definitely read The Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker. So it's really short. And it was eventually turned into something that <laughs> is a bit of pop culture now. It, it was it's turned into Hellraiser and Pinhead. But the original short story is beautiful and erotic and sinister, sort of like my book. <laughs> uh, so you should read that. You should also read um, Imagica, which is a very ambitious book that he wrote that has a lot to do with gods and the worlds in which the gods live and what humans do there and transformations. It's beautiful. Uh, those for sure. Uh, I would also recommend, because people ask me a lot about, like, how do I write an erotic book? Uh, you know, Nine and a Half Weeks is a novel that kind of did a lot for me. <laughs> the, Witch, the Witches of Eastwick, which I read as a teenager, uh, which is very erotic, uh, I highly recommend. And then um, with Aztec mythology and Aztec culture, a lot of these are going to be nine, non-fiction books, uh, but I'm actually going to mm-hmm. kind of turn like sideways for a minute. Uh, this is kind of a uh, headier book. It's not quick and easy reading, but uh, The Labyrinth of Solitude by Carlos Fuentes is really important to read because it touches on some of these themes of Aztec culture, Toltec, Maya, but it, it really talks a lot about like how the country of Mexico evolved, how the people became who they, they were. And so you'll see some themes that are in my books reflected through that. Uh, and he's just such an important writer, one of our best. You know, Sadly, he passed away a few years ago. Uh, that's another great one. Uh, and of course... Some of the Ian Fleming, uh, uh, James Bond books. You must read those because they're quick reads. And, uh, you guys, you know, even if, if we're queer and gay, like I still get turned on by these sex scenes and like he has like really great sex all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in the, in <laughs> books. So that's just a short list. Oh, and very important. Um, she means so much to me the more I get older and she was really taken away from us, uh, at a too early of an age, but anything and everything by Octavia Butler. The, the things she was accomplishing with those books, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'll ever achieve anything like that, but she is just incredible. And when you talk about sexuality, desire, the physical body, and the bodies of aliens or other beings, man, she's covered it and she's written about it. So Octavia Butler is really at that. Brilliant. I'll have to check her out. Yeah, the the book um, Dawn is a great one to start with, mm-hmm. but basically any of them. I mean, the, she didn't have so many and uh, you could just pick up any of them and... Uh, they're just incredible. Brilliant. I mean, uh, is there anything else you wish to touch on? 
Uh, well, I guess some of this would be some of the particulars about, I guess, what happens next. Because mm-hmm. these books, um, I'm just describing what I see, you guys. I'm not actually saying that I did this. But over time, they, they have become a little a little tiny part of the mosaic of BDSM and leather communities, particularly mm-hmm. in Europe and uh, the United States, Canada. And I want to say thank you to people who are part of the community, who engage with these books and who see something in them that connects with them. Because they really, they really do have a following. I, I do, I, week by week, I always sell <laughs> copies of these books. And, um, I, I just want to thank people for following Roland's story. And, uh, I guess also because I became uh, a public person in that world by dressing up in my spandex costumes and going to IML and MAL and all these things, I've learned things about myself and about the community that, mm-hmm. uh, are mostly really positive. And I think, uh, it wouldn't be possible unless I had taken that step to publish these books and just say, I don't give a shit what people think about where these books come from, which is my imagination. Uh, we're just going to put this out there. Because to this day, I still get readers who say, I always felt like ashamed and isolated because I had a superhero fetish. And your books have helped me feel like someone's listening to me. And I really relate to Roland as a character. And... That to me is invaluable. It's something I can take away with me to the grave. So I just want to like bring this back to the community that helped bring these books to, to life. And, um, I'm just very excited about promoting the book. I'll be at IML this year. The superhero fetish meetup is, it's going to be bigger and badder than ever. I, this is spoiler area. We're mm-hmm. at the end of the show. The costume, Roland's costume from uh, gold. I am going to be putting that together and wearing it. So if somebody wants to cosplay as any of the characters from from the books, come on (laughs) over. Um, And, uh, you know, these are things that are just uh, really awesome. And and we continue. I will definitely be taking a little time off from this series. Uh, On my other side of life, that that name is uh, Cesar Torres. I, I have new books coming out, and they connect back to these. So Nine Lords of Night is up next. And um I know you guys, like... Anything superhero fetish related, there's still more to explore. So I just want other writers to to make bo- uh, write books. I want filmmakers, YouTubers, you, you know, make your stuff because it doesn't just have to be me. I want everybody to contribute what this means to everybody. So yeah, just glad to be here, and, and I want to thank you for inviting me to speak. All right, you're always such an amazing guest. I mean, you do great works, and when you offered to be a partner with this show, I was taken away with that um i mean you've done so much it's like you mentioned the iml nights you really created an event there and i've just seen every year it get bigger and bigger and more and more people and sort of my friend lists have all started going <laughs> to it it's <laughs> yeah it's it's snowballed and uh it's it just makes me really happy it's uh you know this is in the books but mm-hmm. more than once by more than one person roland gets heat from people well, these are not the rules. Like, yeah, being, yeah, a, we, being a leatherman is not correct if you're going to dress up like a clown in red or green span. And somehow, Roland always finds that courage to just keep going. And he goes, well, no, this this is truth to me. And there's other people like me. And it also happens to blend with leather and rubber and more of the, you know, traditional thing. And uh, that spirit of the books, that, that sort of queer punks uh, spirit, uh, I just want that to keep going because uh, this community is not static. It is constantly evolving. And trust me, 20, 50 years from now, this will look even more different. And I look forward. I mean, it is brilliant. And I mean, I was talking with a friend the other day about his memories of not being allowed into a rubber club because it wasn't black rubber he was wearing. And it is just 
we're at a point where so much more than just basic black is being allowed in. And I think these books are a part of that. Just getting the word out that you can be, you know, apart from the crowd in a sort of way. Yeah. And, and that's how I feel about not just the leather world. I mean, I think people need to know that as a artist and human being, uh, we get too easily boxed in by the rules. And there's a lot that you can do to satisfy your imagination and to push creativity further uh, where you can do it your way so you know i just want people to not feel afraid to put themselves out there and yes it will be scary and you'll get like some haters uh, mm-hmm. but it's worth doing because that's i think what evolves our culture by trying an experiment yeah i mean that kind of neatly folds it back into sort of my opening questions about being true to yourself and not sticking to one genre sort of, true you know, <laughs> in true. life don't ape box yourself into a genre just be true to yourself and you will find your audience I mean, you really said it. Bring, if you bring it out from the heart, uh, then you just have to mm. see how it unfolds. It's it's when you're not being sincere or you're not mm. doing it from the heart. That's when I think people struggle the most. Mm-hmm. But uh, just dig in, pull it out. I mean, this sounds like uh, like weird, <laughs> astic sacrificial, uh, yeah. right? Like pull out the heart. <laughs> but it's it's, it's a nice <laughs> metaphor. Uh, you, you know, you literally do have to do that and, and show it to people because uh, there will be people who respond to it and love you. Brilliant. So if people wish to learn more or get in contact with you, where can they find you? I'm easy to find on the internet. Um, <laughs> well, I'll talk about in real space how to find me, but um, on the internet, uh, howtokillasuperhero.net is my main website. You can pick up the books from there. So you can get autographed versions, you can regular versions, which are a little cheaper. That's where you can get the ebooks. And then we, I, I'm not making singlets at the moment, but they're going to come back. But I have a lot of t-shirts uh, uh-huh. with, with Roland and other characters from the series. Uh, lately, uh, LED Queens is, uh, a new company that's connected to what I do. Uh, you can find all the books there as well and t-shirts. There's even more t-shirts on LED Queens. Uh, so go check that out. And if you want to reach me, uh, you know, oh, this is not a show about like the perils of Facebook and all of that stuff. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, but honestly, this is a real tip. If you just want to like really reach me, send me an email. This is going to sound so old school. It's au at howtokillasuperhero.net. That's really where you really get to enjoy the, the best of me because the, the questions that a person writes in an email are really kind of different actually than like DMs. So I'm not going to stop you from DMing me. You can do it on Instagram, Facebook, how mm-hmm. to kill a superhero, but, um, send me an email. I think that's, uh, you'll get good surprises in person. Uh, I will be at uh, IML at uh, with the leather archives museum i don't know how they're going to do the author table this year but i'll be there i'll be at the superhero fetish meetup uh i'm planning on new york comic-con and then also and at the moment i'm in chicago i'm trying to create something that looks like like open hour with with pablo green like find a a physical Mm -hmm. place where i can gather some people and we can either hang out or you we can kind of give it more of a purpose q a uh or maybe even like put together some sort of like performance, whatever. Uh, but something that looks different than um, dancing on top of a stage on fetish night, like uh, I, nothing against that either. But I, I just, I found that my readers many times, they just want to like get together like on a Saturday at four and just talk a little bit of like nerdy superhero stuff. Uh, so I've got that coming up. And if you're interested uh, again, send me an email. Um, there is a group for the Superhero Fetish Meetup on Facebook, so you're welcome to join that. And um, just stay in touch. Uh, I got more books coming, and I got more spandex coming, and it's going to be good. So, 
Fantastic. I look forward to seeing it all. So I think that's a good point to bring our show to the close. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Always glad to be here. You're great. I love you. Oh, I'm sure we'll have you back soon. Ha ha. Ha ha. Brilliant. And to our listeners, good night.